Open up to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21 will be in the first 14 verses. But if you haven't been here in a while or you've never been here, just as some information, we have been working our way through the book of Acts. And Marcus has been obviously doing the most of this. This is my first time that I'm getting to jump into this series. And I'm so excited about the blessing that I get to just jump into this verse-by-verse study through Acts. But we've been working through Acts for quite a while, and we've reached Acts chapter 21. And right now we're kind of jumping in in the middle of Paul's ministry. Acts shows how really just the church progresses after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and his ascension. It shows how the Spirit worked through the apostles, through the church, and how the church spread. And Paul is a big reason that the church did spread. And right now, we're picking up in his third missionary journey. So, where we left off last week was Paul's real, uh, real heart-aching moment where he had to leave the people that he loved. He was, he was with this group of people for a long time, and you, you see them weeping and kissing each other because he had to leave them because he was set on a mission for Jerusalem. And we're going to see this uh, theme even more in chapter 21, but Paul has been set on getting to Jerusalem. And even before we read through these four, first 14 verses, we're going to see there's a lot of, they went here, they went there, and it's really just documenting the story of how Paul got to Jerusalem, what happened on his trip to Jerusalem. So I'm going to read for us uh, verses 1 through 14. It says, When he parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And and having found a ship crossing Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed." And said farewell to one another. Then we went on, the, on board uh, the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus. And we, and, we greeted, uh, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Let me pray for us. Father, I can 
testify with that song that I need you, Lord. We all need you. As I stand up here with your perfect word, as an imperfect person, I can say that I need your help up here. I'm so thankful that you have given us your word that we can learn from. And I pray that only truth would be spoken today, that justice would be done to your word and your truth, and that you would be glorified today. I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So, what we're really talking about today is Paul's real tough decision, even though he doesn't treat it much like a tough decision, This really is a tough decision that he's going to have to face. And tough decisions are just a part of life. I mean, anybody in here who's lived any bit of life can tell you that there's tough decisions day after day. It might be simple little decisions, whether you're going to go to this party you got invited to or not, or if you're kids are going to go to this school or not. There's all these different decisions we're making every day. All of our days are full of different decisions, and they could be neutral decisions, they could be God-glorifying decisions, or they could be terrible decisions, and anywhere in between. But our life is full of decisions, and sometimes we're put in situations where we have to make a tough decision where we know this is the right thing to do, this fits with my mission, and I've got to do something about it, even though it may threaten me. And that's exactly what we're going to see here with Paul. And really, this is just good storytelling at any, uh, at any point. Any good story that you hear, there's a tough decision. Any, probably any movie that you love, there's probably some tension there where somebody sees a high-risk, high-reward situation where they see, man, I really want this, but I have to go through and do all these steps first. I mean, that really is life. I mean, the reason I'm in college right now is not because I want to be in college and learn. It's because I'm going through the steps to become a better pastor, hopefully, one day. Or anybody, if you're working hard at your job, you're trying to do, you're going through the hard steps to get to where you want to be. Every day is full of tough decisions. And sometimes those tough decisions are putting you in a better position in life. And sometimes those tough decisions are, am I going to follow the Lord or not? And we have a lot more of those decisions than we realize. Because even in how we spend our time, when you wake up in the morning and you're tired and you, you know you can get an extra 10 minutes of sleep and you say, should I read my Bible this morning or should I just go back to sleep? It's been a long week. I'll, I'll read it later. That's a decision right there where you're saying, am I going to follow the Lord, what he's told me to do, or am I going to follow what I want to do? We're, we're faced with these decisions all the time. And this is going to sound pretty silly that I'm going to bring this up because, like I said, pretty much any good story has this whole idea of a tough decision, high-risk, high-reward decision. And as I was thinking through this, and this will seem very fitting if you know me and my love for baseball, is that I've automatically thought of the Sandlot for some reason. Uh, And if you haven't seen the Sandlot, I'm not scared about spoiling the movie for you. It came out before I was born. So, 
if that dates me a little bit. But, uh, <laughs> but the movie, basic understanding of the Sandlot, new kid comes into town, finds a new group of friends, trying, uh, trying to fit in with a, a group of people, and the people that really accept him are the people that play baseball all the time at the Sandlot. And he doesn't know anything about baseball. Everything he knows about baseball, he's been taught by them. And he continues on. They start playing baseball. Everything's going good. But at this sandlot, they have a big outfield fence that behind it is this dog that they claim is the beast. And all throughout this show or this movie, they're talking about how big and bad this beast is. They're all terrified of it. They're, there's horror stories that this beast has killed people that have gone over there. So every time they hit a home run, that ball is gone because they're not going over there. They're too scared of this beast. And all throughout the movie, they have all these different little schemes to figure it out, whether it be a vacuum to suck, uh, suck the ball up or a catapult to throw it over. All their attempts fail when they're trying to keep themselves safe at the same time and get what they want. And the reason it was such a big deal, and again, this might be something that if you don't know anything about baseball, it was a Babe Ruth signed ball. So that's why they were fighting so hard for this ball, was one of the best baseball players of all time had signed this ball. And all throughout, uh, all throughout this, the movie, they're trying to get this ball. So they've got a tough decision ahead of them. They know... There's a threat over there, but the whole goal behind this movie is to get this ball however they can, but they're too scared to go over the fence. Until finally at the uh, very end, there's one kid that decides, I can go run over the fence and get this ball. And he decides, high risk, high reward, I'm going to go jump over this fence and get this ball, because that is, uh, that is my purpose at this point, is to get this ball at whatever cost. So no matter the threat they have about this dog that apparently has been killing grown men, this young boy thinks, I can go get this ball, and it's worth the risk. And we're going to talk a little bit more about it. I know this, this high-risk, high-reward can fit in a lot of stories, but you're going to see why specifically Sandlot uh, is the one that I chose as we get further into this. But we see a high-risk, high-reward situation that Paul is in in Acts 21. As we see in verse where is it? verse 9, it says, He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While they were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own, uh, own feet and hands and, thus, uh, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So, my first, we're really going to cover four different questions. Two questions that are, we're going to ask of the text that we're reading today, and two questions that we're going to ask for ourselves. This first one is just a real simple one. What is the prophecy? What was the prophecy that uh, Agabus gave to Paul? And the prophecy was a very clear one. He didn't just tell him, oh, you're going to be bound in prison if you get to Jerusalem. He, he put on a full demonstration for him. He literally took Paul's belt 
and bound himself with Paul's belt and said, whenever you go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen to you. You're, you're going to be bound. You're going to be imprisoned. So he's very clear that this is not going to go well for you. But this isn't the first time that we've seen this. In just the last chapter, in Acts 20, 22, and 23, we see, it says, And now behold, this is Paul speaking, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So, this is before all the different trips that I just talked about. He went through the list of all the different towns that he was going to. So Paul knew before he was even going through all these different towns that when he gets to Jerusalem, imprisonment and affliction is awaiting him. So nothing good is waiting on Paul. This is, we're, we're obviously seeing the high-risk side of what Paul's talking about. He knows he's at least getting imprisoned. And when we talk about prophecy, in the same way that we speak about the Bible and we can know that every word of it is true, this prophecy is a word from God that He knows every word of it is true. He knows this isn't a if situation. This isn't a debate. If, if this happens, then it will be pretty bad, but I don't think it will happen. It's, it is a thus saith the Lord prophecy that He will be bound when He gets there. It's a guarantee So he's seeing not only a high risk, he's seeing, I know that I'm going to be bound. But my second question for the text is that, how did Paul respond to the prophecy? Let's look in verse 11. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his uh, own feet in his hands and said, Thus say, uh, says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, and, uh, when we, heard this we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered back, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So they hear this, and they automatically tell him, Paul, please don't go. We know what's going to happen to you there. Why are you going there? We're, we're trying to tell you this is not a good idea. And his response, hmm, I don't care. I know what the Lord has told me. When we go back to... I'm jumping back and forth between Acts 20 and Acts 21, but back in 20, starting in verse 18, it says, They came to him and, and said to them, you, know, uh, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me. And fun fact, the word constrained there is actually the exact same word, just a little bit different form 
of what we say when he says bound, what, it, what he's talking about when he says, I'm going to be imprisoned. He says, the Spirit has bound me to this cause. He says, I can't do anything else. If you're bound to something, you're not getting out. And the Spirit was weighing so heavy on his heart. He's, he didn't even act like this was a decision. So I'm focusing in on how this was a tough decision, but when it really comes to what God has told us, it shouldn't be a decision. It should be clear as day that no matter how hard it gets, no matter what happens, it's not a decision. Whatever God has told us to do, we're bound to. So carrying on, it says in verse uh, 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That is his response. When he's when he's given this threatening prophecy that you're going to receive afflictions, he says, so? It's just me we're talking about here. I'm not that important. It's not about me. That is Paul's response to this scary situation. High risk, high reward, an absolute surety that he's going to be imprisoned. And he says, all right, bring it on. Because I know the Lord has told me to do this. And not only has the Lord told him to do this once, it literally is, it says that he, the Spirit was testifying to him in every single city. The list of cities that we just talked about, how he stopped in this city, stopped in this city, and these aren't even his, all of his stops. There's some stops in chapter 20, but it says in every single city, the Spirit was reminding him, you are going to be persecuted. And he kept the faith. This wasn't just a good decision one time, which a lot of us, to be honest, I, I think all of us can agree, if we have one little moment of strength where we deny temptation, we're like, man, I'm doing pretty good. I, I, I had a good day. I had one good day. All the other days were bad, but I had one good day. But Paul, knowing every single time he stopped at a place, was reminded, you're going to face persecution. You're going to be in prison. He said, I don't care. It's not about me. And to continue just to look at how he has responded to these different things, I want to read for you actually something that we talked about today in our student ministry out of Colossians 4, 2 through 4 says, uh, this is Paul speaking to the Colossian people. He wrote a letter. This is actually called one of the prison epistles. This is one of the letters that Paul wrote from prison. And he said, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison. So he is in the middle of imprisonment. 
And he's, he's saying, can you guys pray for me? And you, you're automatically like, oh yeah, you're in prison. I'll pray for you to get out. Like we already know Paul is at this point has already been like bailed out of jail at some point through a miraculous miracle of God. But he doesn't pray for that. He says, verse 3, it says, Pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word. He doesn't see these afflictions as something that he needs to get rid of. He sees them as an opportunity that he knows God has put him there to share the word. This is Paul's response. And just like he says in Philippians 1.21, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the attitude that Paul has to this threatening revelation. So that leads me to the two questions that we need to think about ourselves. And that would be, what has been prophesied to us? So, Paul's been given some threatening prophecies, some threatening words from God. What do we need to take into account? What has God told us? And I can tell you that this book is a book of prophecy. It's it's a book that was brought about by prophecy. Prophecy isn't always telling of the future. Prophecy can be telling you something that's just true right now. I know a lot of times we think of prophecy because mostly it's movies and we talk about biblical prophecies, we talk about revelation, all that stuff, but prophecy is just speaking the words of God, the revelation of God. That's what the prophets did. So when we ask what has been prophesied to us, this is it. This is the thing that we need to respond to. I'm going to read for us out of 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17, just to give a better idea of what it means and what, what has been prophesied to us about being Christians and what the life of a Christian looks like. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 17 says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my uh, persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and, and at least uh, Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet, uh, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. So, first thing that I want to focus in on there is 
what I just read at the very end. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness. So this is the prophecy. Every bit of Scripture, even the Old Testament that you don't like to read, is inspired. Even the list of names in the Old Testament that you can get bored, uh, bored reading during your Bible reading plan that make you quit your read the Bible in a year in February. All those things are inspired and there for a reason. It says all Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, and training in righteousness. All of it. We can't pick and choose. And second of all, I want us to notice that with that in mind, he says in verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We don't have a very specific, like actually acted out for us prophecy before us of what's going to happen to us if we do what the Lord tells us to do. But we do have this promise. All who desire to live a godly life. And if, if you're a Christian in here and saying that you, don't, you have no desire to live a godly life, then I doubt the fact that you're even a Christian. So we could even replace the, uh, the words here and say, every Christian will be persecuted in some way. It may be little. I understand we're in an area that isn't going to persecute us for carrying our Bible around, like well, at least like they would. We're not going to get sent to prison for it. But there's a lot of Christians that are in prison right now for this very thing. Amen. And who knows about the future of this country or any, anywhere in the world of what's going to happen. And it may come to that point where things are illegal and we won't be able to meet like this and advertise the fact that we have a church on every single corner. But there will be persecution. So, just like Paul, we know we're going to receive persecution. What are you going to do with that prophecy? What are you going to do with that word from God? Are you going to shy away and live a lukewarm Christian life and try to avoid any kind of persecution you can and just try to get to heaven? I know that's our natural thing to do. But that's not the only thing that we've been uh, commanded, what has been shown to us in Scripture. There's, Like I said, this is literally all of God's Word is prophecy. It's something that we need to respond to. And here's just a few simple things that are in Scripture that we all need to respond to. Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God looked over, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. We've been called to repent. Not only that, in 2 Corinthians 5.10 it says, For all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Amen. So there is judgment coming. We're... We've been called to repent, and we know that there's judgment coming based on our works. And if you know yourself at all, you know that's not a good thing. All of us have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. But also, we know that there is redemption. 
Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only those things, but something that I know has been emphasized pretty recently here is the fact that we need to go and make disciples. Matthew 28, 19-20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This, these are all just examples of something we need to respond to. So my last question for us today is, how will we respond to God's Word? How will we respond to the call to repent? Will we respond just like Paul did and say, I'm bound to what he's called me to do? Or are we going to just say, well, I mean, Jesus' blood covers my sin, so I'm, I'm okay. That is not the attitude to have. Paul, and ultimately our greatest example is seen in Jesus and his obedience, but we, we know like even as Jesus was coming up, getting ready to be crucified, in the garden he was wrestling with this fact because Jesus knew that he was about to go through the greatest suffering of his life. But even after all of that, He was literally stressed so much he was bleeding. He was sweating blood. And he said, not my will. Even Jesus had a point where he said, it's not about me. Because he was doing that for you. That's just insane. The one that before every single person will bow before had a moment where he said, it's, it's not going to be about me right now. I'm going to die for them. And ultimately it does. It is going to be about him because that ultimately glorifies him. That's what the whole goal of God's plan is to glorify him. But he even responded and said, not my will, but yours be done. So when you see this call to repent, when you... I can mention repentance right now, and you can probably have at least two or three sins in your life that you're thinking, yeah, I probably need to repent of those. What are you going to do about it? It's been clearly revealed. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to respond like Paul did? Saying, it's not what I want. I want this sin, but that's not my purpose. I'm going to do what the Lord has told me to do. And you might be an unbeliever in here. I don't know who's in here that is a believer or not. I don't know if we have a visitor here that's never heard the name of Jesus before. I have no clue. But when we see that it's clearly been laid out that there is a judgment coming, how are you going to respond to that? I'll tell you that the response isn't make up for your bad works with good works. It's trust in the only one that did everything perfectly. And that's Jesus. That's why we can see that we do have redemption in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And knowing that all of this is true, we also have the command to go and make disciples. 
That's not just a command for people that are on staff at this church. That is a command for every single one of us. That is, that is something that we all must respond to. And I can tell you that most of us, most of the time, are saying, eh, I'm okay. We focus on what we want to do. I'm not going to make myself look stupid or put, uh, maybe even lose my job for standing up for Christ. That's not the attitude that Paul had. Anything that happened to him, he said, it's just me. I'm not worth anything. Might as well happen to me. He even had such a love for people. He had such a love for the Jews. He even made a comment that he said he wished he could be accursed for the sake of all Israel being saved. That's the heart that Paul had, and that's the kind of heart that we should have. If it meant us being judged for them to be saved, then count me in. That's the attitude that Jesus had. Jesus took the judgment so that we could be saved. So how are you going to respond to this? And the connection that I want to make with this, the reason that I brought up Sandlot at the very beginning of this is... If you watch to the very end, he, he gets chased around by the dog. He gets the ball. He runs all, uh, all the way around town. It's a pretty fun scene to watch. But he finally gets back, and the fence gets knocked over. All of it calms down, and the fence fell down on the beast. And they decided to help, uh, help the dog out because it was pinned underneath the fence. And right after this moment, they have a face-to-face moment between the beast and this young kid that thought it was a good idea to go on his territory. And they're staring face to face, and the beast just starts licking his face. We're so worried about death, but if you're a Christian, that's what death is to you. It looks like a big threat, but when you actually get in the face of it, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's actually a blessing that we get to die for Christ. Even it talks about in Acts, I'm, we're glad that we're considered worthy enough to die for Christ. It's a blessing. It's an honor to die for Christ. It's an honor to be persecuted for Christ. So in the same way that we can be so scared of this thing that's over on the other side of the fence. If you're a Christian, if you've truly trusted in the God who, overcome, who overcame death, you don't have to worry about it. And even later in the movie, after they meet the owner, which they thought was just a mean old man that would probably kill him too, whenever they told him about the situation, he said, you could have just come to the front door. I would have given the ball to you. And in the same way that the owner of that thing that they were scared of was more than willing to give us this great valued treasure that they were seeking after, God, who is the owner of death, the, the, He conquered death. He showed that 
He Himself would die for us and then conquer death Himself. The owner of this thing that we're so scared of says, all you have to do is come knock on the door. You can have life. You don't have to be scared of the beast. You don't have to be scared of death. You don't have to be scared of persecution. You don't have to be scared about losing friends. You don't have to be scared about losing your job. You don't have to be scared about losing any bit of joy in your life, honestly. Because you know that what's waiting on you on the other side is so much more, so much better than what you could ever imagine. This is the attitude that Paul had. Now, as the band comes uh, back up and uh, we're coming to a close, I want us also to notice one more thing. Not only do we see Paul's attitude, but we see the people around him, what their attitude was. In verse 14, after they had just told him, we don't think this is a good idea, Paul. You're going to get in prison. Nothing good's going to happen to you. He tells them, no, I'm going to do what the Lord has told me to do. And they respond. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So just as we talked about, or was talked about last week, when Marcus was worried about leaving his children, how, how, many, how many loved ones we have in our life that we worry about what's going to happen to them. These people had a love for Paul. And they knew what was going to happen to him. And when he said, the Lord has called me to this, they said, let the Lord's will be done. So you might be in here and you have a family member that's called to be a missionary. And even though that scares, scares you so much, especially because it's sometimes we can even get a, a good attitude where we're wor- more worried about maybe the people in our family, especially if your parents were more worried about your children than you would ever be worried about yourself. To send them overseas, to send them where I can have no contact with them, to send them where Christ can't even be named out loud in public terrifies you. If the Lord has called them there, say, let the Lord's will be done. And it may not be that they're a missionary. It may just be that they have a different pathway of life that uh, that they want to do. They want to go in this career instead of join your family business or follow in your footsteps, whatever that may be. If the Lord has told them to do it and led them to it, say, let the Lord's will be done. Whether it be in your life or in the people around you's life, I pray that we would all say, let the Lord's will be done. I'm going to pray for us. Father, I thank You for the great love that You've shown us. I thank You that we can trust You. I thank You that You have given us this Word to to bring us confidence. And also, that You've given us this Word for us to realize that we will be persecuted. There's no confusion about what we're being called to. 
I pray that we would respond just like Paul did, just like Jesus did. And say, I don't care what pain I have to go through. If it's the Lord's will, I'm going to do it. I pray that that would be all of our attitudes. I pray that this last song of worship would just be in total surrender of us saying, not my will, but yours be done. I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.